Welcome to the podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Arlington Heights. Our sermon series is called Parallax, where we're going to be looking at topics from the Bible from two different perspectives. I hope you enjoy. And with that, we're going to move forward in our worship with our first scripture reading, which comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted, 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 my brain, wow. He said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. The word of the Lord. And then TC gets to be all finished with this dicey topic. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to read from Song of Solomon. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, all my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we are doing a sermon series called Parallax. If you have not been here, the concept of a parallax is when two people are looking at the exact same thing, but they're seeing it from completely different perspectives. Uh, This is a term that's often used in astronomy when two astronomers are looking at the same star, but they're in different geographical points on the earth. And The idea is is that we're going to talk about how this is true of the Bible, that you can be reading the Bible and come away from the scriptures with completely different interpretations of what it all means. And so each week we have been having two preachers. Sometimes it's TC and myself. Judy drew the wrong straw on this one and got, got today's topic. And so we go back and forth. We each take a side and we go from there. We don't necessarily always believe in the things that we're preaching, but we're going to take the side regardless and go forward. And so today... We are talking about sexuality, and in particular, we're talking about whether or not the Bible tells us that sex is appropriate only in marriage for the purposes of procreation, or whether sexuality is meant for enjoyment. So I'm going to be taking the side that the Bible tells us that sexuality is really only meant for marriage and procreation, and Judy's going to take the side that anything goes, I guess. You can do whatever you want. I look like that kind of person, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, 
<laughs> you do. <laughs> so I promise you it won't be too awkward. It's going to be kind of fun, but not too much fun because, as I'm going to argue, God only wants us to have fun under a very specific set of circumstances. So I'm going to start with Matthew, and this text is where Jesus is talking about uh, the marriage being between a man and a woman. And of course, as you know, I always like to do, I want to put it in its context of its time and place. So marriage during Jesus' day was very different than how we know marriage today in modern America. Marriage actually came up as an institution with human beings around 10,000 years ago. That's when it all started. It started actually around the same time that humans began uh, claiming land ownership as their own. Now the reason why you have marriage and land ownership coming about at the exact same time is because institutionally the marriage concept was used so that families could either maintain or expand their land. So here's an example of how it would work. Let's say you have two families that own land. One family, they grow strawberries on their land. The other family, they grow blueberries on their land. And one day, the two patriarchs, they come out into the field and they see each other and they say, you know what? Strawberries and blueberries, they do go very well together. And so they say, do you think we could join forces? So they have a conversation about it. And as a result of that conversation, they end up making an arrangement, literally arranging for their sons and daughters to get married, to form an alliance with each other. And so ancient marriage was really not about love. It was really about making your family stronger. And this very much is what was happening during Jesus' day and time. This is how marriage operated. So your families, they would work very hard. Your parents, they would go out. They would do their very, very best to try to find some type of person for you who was going to maintain or improve your family name. Now, if you were a girl, let's say you were living in Galilee, where Jesus is from. If you were a girl, you would be married off between the ages of 12 and 14. That's an average. And if you were a boy, you would be married off usually between the ages of 16 and 18. Sometimes it could be earlier, sometimes it could be later, but that's about usually when it happened. So what you have to appreciate is that once these two people ended up getting married, their entire purpose was to produce children. Because even though the marriage itself actually bound two people together, like basically established a connection between these two families, it's the children that cemented that relationship in place. And so this is why when Jesus is talking about marriage, he says two shall become one flesh. And that reference to one flesh, that's the reference to procreation, because you have Two people, two different DNAs coming together, one flesh producing offspring, which is the purpose of marriage. <laughs> okay, then. So, as Alex already said, um, in ancient biblical times, marriages were arranged. In fact, marriages are still arranged in countries around the world. We just heard from a missionary here on Wednesday night from the Democratic Republic of Congo who talked about the fact that even today, October 20th, 2019, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, marriages are arranged. Um, as late as the late 19th and early 20th century, arranged marriage still took place in Europe and even in the United States, particularly among elite classes. And it was for much the same reason that Alex um, has mentioned, and that was to marry wealth together 
or marry wealth and property, or marry old money to new money so everybody would have status in the society, the same kind of status. Children were definitely an important part of arranged marriages because they did cement the relationship and they were the ones that made sure that that marriage of money or land and money continued into the future. And honestly, as a mother of three unmarried children, arranged marriage may not be such a bad idea. <laughs> but I think we would all agree that um, our society has changed greatly and that the normative behavior around both sex and marriage has changed in these last, even in 40 years since I got married or since I was growing up and got married. Um, we no longer need to arrange marriage um, between two people for the protection of land or wealth it, that's no, or to a, achieve status in a society. That's no longer necessary. And while I'm in favor of marriage, definitely in favor of marriage, um, I'm very aware, again, as the mother of three children, that the younger generation does not feel the same need for marriage to order life, um, to establish societal norms, and that many young people are choosing to remain unmarried um, and establish their family that way. Um, enjoying sex before marriage is no longer a, to, as taboo as it once was. Now, I want to be really careful because, as I said to Alex, I am not uh, the face of uh, promiscuity or, <laughs> uh, you know, just go for it, whatever makes you feel good. Um, I want to be clear that I think that the sexual relationship belongs in a committed relationship between two consenting adults. And I want to underline adult. You can define adult at whatever age you choose. Um, there may be some dads out there that are, would like to define that at around age 35 <laughs> for their daughters. But I think that the sexual experience between two people is something so significant and so important that it shouldn't be entered into until people, those two people really understand what it's going to mean to fully give themselves over to that other person. Um, I believe that God created us, though, in such a way to desire that kind of intimacy and that that intimacy can be a way to experience God's love and experience God's desire to be close to us. If you have any teenagers and they're wondering what the Bible says about sex, have them read the Song of Solomon. They might not only be surprised, but shocked by what they would find in that particular book of the Bible. They might be surprised by some of the language, as we read earlier. Oh, come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Now, that sounds like a little bit of passion and not a request for procreation or marriage. I'm not saying romance isn't a good thing. I mean, come on. <laughs> romance is a good thing. It's in the Bible. I mean, I'll give you that. And uh, 
I think that ultimately God wants us to enjoy romantic relationships. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Um, in fact, romance could actually set the basis for different relationships in the ancient world. In fact, it could form the basis of a marriage. So let's say two teenagers met each other. They fell in love. They wanted to get married. As long as they were from the right types of families, that marriage would be allowed to proceed. The issue came up when two teenagers fell in love and their families were either from different classes or from competing interests. So a good example of this would be the story you all know of Romeo and Juliet, right? So this is why, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, they can't get married because the Capulets and the Montagues, they come from different competing interests as families. And that's why they can't be together. Now, regardless of how a marriage comes together, whether it's through arrangement or whether it's through romance, the Bible is pretty consistent in its view that sexuality should be reserved for the purposes of procreation. And indeed, the Bible talks about sex as a gift that was given to humans by God in order to propagate the species. This is the whole idea behind be fruitful and multiply, Genesis, right, TC? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that idea is all built around procreation. Now, I want to, again, put this in its time and place, because I think it's very important to understand the context of this. So at the time the Bible was written, they had no such thing as birth control in the way that we know it today. Every sexual encounter had the potential for pregnancy. And you needed those pregnancies, because statistically, half or more of your children were not going to even make it into adulthood, let alone the fact that many women didn't even come to term with many of their pregnancies because they would often miscarry due to the fact that they just didn't have enough nutrition to get the child all the way to childbirth. Like, to give you a sense, let me just back up for a second and give you a sense of how hard it was for a child to actually make it in the ancient world. So, assuming that you made it out of childbirth, right, which was not super huge uh, statistically that you were even going to do that. But assuming you made it out, you had to clear the one-year mark first. And if you made it to the one-year mark without contracting any major illnesses or diseases, then the likelihood of your survival spiked to about 76%. From there, the next hurdle you had to get over was 14. If you made it, from one to, if you made it to 14 years old, then all of a sudden, your likelihood of dying from illness or disease dropped to about 5 or 6%. So you would make it all the way to about 40 years old. From 14 to 40, you'd be good. Only 5 to 6% from disease. Now, you could die from a lot of other things, but 5 to 6% from disease. And this is why, in the ancient world, a lot of those ceremonies in antiquity celebrating the transition from childhood to adulthood took place around the age of 14. Because they knew that once you got there, likely, you were going to be able to really make it going forward. And so the Bible never really anticipates the technology we have day, today to prevent pregnancy. Indeed, the authors of the Bible would be baffled why anyone would ever want to prevent a pregnancy given the mortality rate of children. And this is why the authors of the Bible also tend to be very morally opposed to any type of abortion. Most of your children were going to die anyway. So every one of those pregnancies that you had, it increased the likelihood that at least one of your children was going to make it into adulthood. And this is why the Bible, when it's looking at sex, really doesn't have any room for sex to do anything but procreate. 
Because the fact is, life was fragile. And if you didn't use sex for that purpose, then you were actually going to put the species, our species, in a place where we might not make it. And so they wanted to make sure that we were going to be able to survive. Well, Alex is right. I mean, the infant mortality rate was atrocious. Um, in fact, just a little aside, the United States still has the highest infant mortality rate for developed nations in the world. Um, but back in biblical times, the um, infant mortality and um, maternal mortality was extremely high. And it was extremely high even into the uh, early 20th century. I had a great-grandmother who I actually had a chance to know. Um, she had three children in the early 1900s. And in a space of two years, she lost all three of her children. Uh, they were uh, elementary school age at the time. She lost one in a playground accident, a hit on the head, and she lost two others in, uh, from childhood disease. Um, so infant mortality was no joke. The more children you had, the greater the likelihood that you would have that children would live to adulthood. Ironically, my great-grandmother in her early 40s went on to have two more children that did live to adulthood, which is why I'm here, because one of them was my grandmother. Um, but um, that was true for lots of people. Um, and the more children that you had, the more children that were there to uh, work your land if you needed workers, and to take care of you as the parent in your old age. Remember, we're talking about days before Social Security or anything like that. So procreation was definitely very, very important. But the Bible doesn't limit sexual activity to procreation. We have lots of stories of men who sleep with their maidservants, who have concubines. We read about that throughout the Old Testament. There's the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. Um, where uh, Judah, sleep, Judah leaves his brothers and sleeps with Tamar because he believes she's a prostitute. Now, he wasn't anticipating procreation at that point. And then, of course, there's the very well-known story of David and Bathsheba. That was not about marriage or procreation, <laughs> at least not in the beginning. Um, and adultery, the definition of adultery was defined as sleeping with another man's wife. It wasn't defined just as cheating on your own wife, but it was sleeping with another man's wife. If a, if a married man slept with an unmarried woman, well, that wasn't any problem at all. So clearly, these are um, signs or uh, ish, areas of sex for pleasure uh, throughout the Bible. Well. And given some of the examples that you use, though, the interesting thing about that is how Jesus comes back in the New Testament. He says, well, we need to assess our motivation because Jesus is always asking us to assess our motivation. So let me give you another example of set-aside sexuality. How about giving to people who are in need? So why do you give to somebody who's in need? Do you give to them because they need the help? Or do you give to them because you want people to see what you're doing and then think well of you. 
So Jesus says you need to assess your motivation for why you do what you do. So the same thing we need to look at and ask the question, so what is your motivation for engaging with sexuality? And again, I think it's very important to understand that the Bible views sexuality as a gift given to humans by God, Mm -hmm. and the pleasure of sexuality that you're referring to is very much an enticement towards reproduction. And so what happens is in the Bible, and I find this to be very, very interesting, is that it kind of sets up this question, which is that if you're engaging in sexuality for the purposes of pleasure without reproduction in mind, is that wrong? And there's a big reason why the... uh, I coughed in the microphone. I guess you think it's wrong. Okay, so... (laughs) Or right. We'll see. So... um, Is it wrong for us to do that? And the reason why they pose that question is because the authors of the Bible are very cautious around this particular issue. Because when you divorce procreation from sexuality, then it can actually lead to some very negative consequences in your life when you are only engaging in sexuality for the purposes of pleasure. So when you do that, when you divorce those two things and when you're engaged in sexuality only for the purposes of pleasure, the authors of the Bible say it skews your understanding of sexuality. It skews the purpose for why you're doing it. And on the other side of that, what it also does is it skews your understanding of relationships. And we see this today with a lot of young people, with the way that they are dating. So if you go on dating apps like Tinder, and you go on a date based on Tinder, right? Well, when you go out with that person, the goal of going out with a person who you met on Tinder is not to get to know them super well on a deep level. The goal is to get to know them well enough to sleep with them. That's the idea. And what happens is, with a lot of young people today, is that they find themselves in a situation where they are sitting there and they're saying, well, if I don't accept these sexual advances. And a lot of times they're unwanted, and this is for both women and men, that if they don't accept those unwanted sexual advances, they may not get a chance at a second date. And if they don't get a chance at a second date, they may not know that there's anything deeper, which is what everybody ultimately wants at the end of the day, is they want that connection. And so they're having to do this in a way that they may not want to, simply because they want to get to know this person better. And so, When you're simply seeking out sexuality for pleasure, you are walking into murky waters because sex was never meant to be the foundation of human relationships. Sex was meant to be a natural consequence of love and intimacy once you have formed a committed relationship. And so the Bible actually gives us a way that we can maintain a natural order of operations. If you get into a relationship with a person, once you're in that relationship, once you love them, then marry them, and then you can enjoy the pleasure of sexuality so that two can become one flesh. Got it. You and, and a three-fold cord will uh, not be broken. That's just, can't break it. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I don't disagree with anything uh, Alex has said. I think that the best use of sex and our sexuality is found in marriage in that committed relationship. And I also agree with Alex that the norms for sexual behavior in our society today have gotten very, very skewed and out of control. Um, There's a phrase, friends with benefits, 
don't know how many of you are familiar with that. That just means that you can have sex with that person without any expectation of commitment or anything else. And the dating app, Tinder in particular, not all of them, but Tinder, is definitely a dating site for what the kids today or the people under 35, which I consider kids, uh, call hooking up, you know? You just sleep with somebody. Um, but, so I, I don't want, I don't, um, I agree, let me put it that way, let me put it in the positive. I agree that we have taken things too far, that we are maybe perhaps too sexually liberated for our own good. But if we take the Bible and say the Bible says sex is only for procreation, that can cause a lot of damage too. Consider the show about the Duggar family or Duggar family, 19 and counting. And now their children are having 19 and counting. I mean, the risk to the woman carrying that many children, the risk to the children, and I just, I'm sorry, but I can't believe that any two people are able to provide emotionally, financially, mentally, and physically for 19 children. We are not, that is not how God created us either. Um, and we no longer live in a time where we have to have seven children or eight children so that we can have two or three that live to adulthood. For centuries, the Bible has been used to repress our sexuality. And this has been an, a negative consequence also. Women, there are churches today that preach that women are to be submissive to their husbands. Submissive to their husbands, which means that there are many women, young women, middle-aged women, and older women, who find themselves in abusive relationships because they are trying to follow a biblical understanding of a woman being submissive, at least as they understand it. The Roman Catholic Church has refused to acknowledge the sexuality of priests, and in part, that's what's led, that's not the whole explanation, but that's part of what has led to uh, many, much of the sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. Over and over again, in the Song of Solomon, the author calls for his or her beloved to find them in the field, to find them in bed, to find them in the vineyard, to grow things together. The book is full of love poetry and love language, and it creates beautiful images. In fact, I suppose that could be difficult, too, because not many of us have someone calling us their beloved and inviting us to the vineyard. However, this is not sex for the sake of sex. This is sex that grows out of a deep need, as Alex even said, a need to be intimate with another, a need to be connected. And this is something God has created. Sex is a gift that God has given to us so that we can experience that incredible intimacy. And in experiencing that intimacy with another human being, we can understand better how deeply and intimately God loves us and how God desires to be in relationship with us. It's in the beauty of giving ourselves 
fully and freely to another person without worry about procreating, that we know the true power of God's love for us. Amen. I like that Alex gives me the last word. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.